Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Audio Book Club. I'm Hara Rosen, sitting in for Dan Coyes today, and I'm joined by Slate writers Jamel Bowie. Hi, Jamel. Hello. And Katie Waldman. Hi, Katie. Hey. Today we are discussing Bad Feminist, a book of essays by the novelist and English professor Roxane Gay. As always, we are hoping you've already read the book because we like to talk about it in detail, and if you haven't and still want to listen, then you're going to have to forgive all of our spoilers because we'll talk about all of it. So Roxanne, and I feel like I can call her that because her voice in this book is very inviting of conversation and very self-aware and sort of friendly. And also she watches lots and lots of bad TV and is kind of proud of it, writes essays about gender, race, politics, and pop culture. She mixes, often in a single essay, confessional writing with cultural criticism, which is unusual. We'll talk about what she means by being a bad feminist, why she hates Tyler Perry and most portrayals of black characters in movies, and why she loves Scrabble, which is her most surprising obsession in the book. Uh, I hope it's okay with you guys. I'm going to start with that typical first-year professor chapter. I'm going to read something from page 20, partly because I think it's an incredibly charming chapter. It talks about her first year as a professor, and she's gotten her first job, and just what a surprise that is after years and years of graduate school. And I think it gives you a sense of her distance from herself, but also her warmth. And it's where she first starts to ease into some of her issues, like class and privilege, but she does it very gently in this essay. I'm going to quote something that Katie quoted in her Slate review of Bad Feminist. She says, when I walk into the classroom, the students stare at me like I'm in charge. They wait for me to say something. I stare back and wait for them to do something. It's a silent power struggle. Finally, I tell them to do things, and they do those things. I realize I am, in fact, in charge. We'll be playing with Legos. For a few minutes, I am awesome because I have brought toys. Katie, why did you pick out that little passage in your review to illustrate her style? Well, I thought it was a great microcosm of the way she operates as a writer. Like, she is so wry. She's so delightful. There's so much warmth and humor there. And there's also kind of a rhetorical repetition happening. I stare back and wait for them to do something. It's a silent power struggle. The repetition of the word things, like, it just kind of envelops you. And I 
got a sense of how great a craftswoman she was as a writer. I Which was, is funny because yeah. she writes very simply, right? Like her sentences, right. like another one you picked out was about, uh, I like strong women. We'll get to that. It's a great essay about the Hunger Games. But it's kind of uh, surprisingly straightforward the way she writes. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of her paragraphs tend to begin with just sort of that kind of straight declarative statement. And mm-hmm. then it leads on and it's sort of... Some of the essays read as sort of like a series of qualified decorative statements, which I like Mm because that's sort of how I think. Wait, what do you mean by that? I mean, because to, she's not bombastic. No, like no, if you no. say a lot of declarative, you get the sense that she's saying right. blah blah blah. No, but she's it's Charles Krauthammer or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she's not bombastic. But I, I just sort of like it's almost like each paragraph begins with sort of the statement of the theme for that paragraph, and then she develops it and then moves on, but not in sort of yeah, not not in a bombastic way or sort of like a outsized way at all. I, I think, think it's, it's kind confident. of a magic yeah. trick to be like mm-hmm. that confident and declarative and yet totally inviting. Like you never feel like she's shutting you out, right? Like you never feel like she's just declaring that's her position. She's she's done. She's stuck there. Yeah, yeah. like she's regal. Like I think that there's something kind of defiant in this first person woman saying like here is what I think and I really admired that. I thought it was kind of raw and interesting and courageous. But it's also sort of like, this is me. What do you think? It right. is opening a conversation. You described her essays, which I think is true. A fair number of them managed to be declarative and completely open-ended at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's another magic trick that she pulls off so often. What do you think about that as a way? You know, as a sort of she, – she's often just raising questions, right? Like she doesn't solve them. You don't often get to the right. end of her passages and think, oh, now I know exactly what to think about privilege. I mean sometimes she does, but sometimes she doesn't. I liked it, but I also felt a little frustrated at times. Like she'll say like – I do not care for epitaphs or something. Right. Um, and then you're like, okay, why not? <laughs> right. But I sort of felt sometimes like I was back in college and I know she's a professor and it was like the seminar leader says this really interesting, compelling prompt and then everyone just sort of thinks about it for a while and talks about it. And at times I sort of wondered, is she not really bringing as much to the page as the reader is? Like is she sort of guiding us to think really deeply about things but like not – taking us there herself and like am I doing most of the work but in a good way or in a frustrating way at first I was like maybe this is a not particularly benign magic trick where she has this tone that seems incredibly important and profound and so she's priming us to think that everything is very profound but we're the ones doing all the thinking and she's just giving these very very open-ended statements but as I read I realized like no she's very skillfully leading us along these arguments and she clearly has done a lot of the thought behind them. I thought. She, she never humble brags, but she truthfully places herself – like she's proud of herself when she wants to be proud of herself. Like her right. relationship with her, it sounds like pretty poor students who didn't come prepared particularly for her English class. They love her and she says that they love her and they like give her awards at the end and they also make fun of her. She's very knowledgeable about her place in any given situation. Like yeah. she's Haitian. So it's like how the American-born black students perceive her as a kind of immigrant who talks a certain way and is an English professor. Like she really kind of always seems to know her place in any given situation and how she's being perceived, which is a lot of self-awareness, I would say. Let's talk about the bad feminist. Is she being serious? Like, does she actually think she's a bad feminist? Like, what did you make of her laying herself that? I mean, I thought that the label bad feminist, meaning she's a feminist, but she doesn't fit the, I guess, what she perceives like rigid definition of what a feminist is. 
it felt a little straw manny to me. Yeah. Just because, and maybe it's just sort of the insofar that I like interact with feminist spaces. Maybe it's just the feminist spaces I interact with. But it seems that most self-identified feminists I know would also be bad feminists. I don't know anyone who fits that rigid definition of a feminist. And again, this just might be a function of my networks. Like many of the feminists I know are also women of color. And so they're just interacting with sort of the feminist worldview in a different way than maybe this archetypal feminist that may exist does. But but do they? And does she know that they don't? I yeah, mean, so it's that's, funny. Yeah. Like those were my least – weirdly, even though the book is called Bad Feminist, I hated the intro and I mm. love the rest of the book. I was like very <laughs> happy sinking into her voice and her personality right. and her stories except for the introduction like really turned me off because I felt like – that's the only time she's not that self-aware. Has anyone met a feminist like that? Like her definition of feminism is oddly ungenerous. It's like not capacious, right? It right. doesn't include, you know, we have slut walks, we have feminism. You know, there's been many, many phases of feminism through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever, that incorporates sexiness and even sluttiness. And, and so even in academic settings, like I know she's in an academic setting where the definitions are slightly more rigid, but it felt, you know... I don't know. She gets earnest towards the end, too. And when she's talking about my book, she gets earnest. So I think she does stick to some of those ideologies. But in general, it seemed like she's a pretty good feminist. I agree with you. I thought that it, at first I thought, oh, this is just a defense mechanism or this is a posture to preempt criticism and rare, annoying. <laughs> but I actually think that it's really the bad part. It's yes. The idea that she's yes. a bad feminist and that she is trying to sort of rescue this idea of imperfection and yes. flaw and she's saying like okay i'm not a bad feminist but even if i were even if i like had these true flaws that compromised my identity as a feminist that would be okay because it is human to have contradictions and flaws and basically she's rescuing sort of like human us from and these I, expectations of and I love that about her. I mean, I think yeah. that's why the straw man is probably important for her psychologically because, first of all, she's a loner, right? Or she perceives herself to be a loner, right. like someone mm -hmm. who doesn't fit into community, someone who dates people who are very, very different from her. So I think she probably walks the earth feeling like, okay, there's this group out there of feminists, even if there isn't. And I really can't belong to them. Because the examples she gives are not like, you know, she like she dances to Robin Thicke every once in a while, right? right. Like they're not that radical. So I think it's probably more of a psychological construction than it is like an actual political construction because her politics are pretty good. I mean, you know, admirable, good. Um, pop culture, would anyone care to define her taste? After I finished the book, I was thinking like, what does she like? Like, what does she sink into? Is it always bad TV and bad movies? I myself watch a lot of TV and a lot of movies. Like, I think I will try to figure out her taste more with those. I think when it comes to TV, I get the sense that really all she watches is bad TV and maybe she'll like watch uh prestige things just because like you should watch prestige things and not like them she right. like them right. and this is i mean this is a, like I, i'll watch Mad Men. i don't particularly enjoy Mad Men, but i watch it because everyone else is watching it and uh -huh. i like to be part of the conversation <laughs> what i thought was more interesting than her tv taste were her movie taste and sort mm -hmm. of like it seems like there's like a world of movies that she would want to enjoy but mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons she cannot enjoy mm -hmm. yeah. um the whole tyler perry essay and sort of like the idea that tyler perry makes movies for black people and she likes the fact that there is a guy who makes movies for black people. Right. Although the particular movies are really problematic in a lot of ways. And she talks about one movie that's called 
Temptation, I think is what it's called. Yeah, I didn't see yeah. it, so I couldn't. I didn't. It's know. really terrible. Um, it's really terrible, and, like really morally objectionable. Uh huh. And that seems to be and, for the reasons she says. For the reasons she uh-huh. says. If you ever get a chance to, it's worth like having on when you're making dinner or like doing something, so you're uh-huh. not paying too much attention because the moral problems with it are so like so like big. what? Just say what they are in case uh, any of our listeners have. So the seen. main character is unsatisfied with their marriage, ends up cheating on her husband, getting AIDS, and then like oh, being gosh. lonely and sad. <laughs> so, so you want to be chopping your vegetables like right, right. oh can't so believe you, what this what I'm happened. saying is you'll be chopping your vegetables and you'll look up and be like oh that was terrible and then you'll go back to chopping your but vegetables but is it bad qualitatively for the soap opera or is it bad because like you know if you're black you're always going to end up getting AIDS and it, having like it, you know sort of uh, moral attracted to, bad. to right. dis- it, it's, yeah. right. it's moral fable bad in the sense that and, and she makes this point that a lot of Tyler Perry films have they're centered on the punishment of the woman in the story for uh-huh. some like perceived violation of like conduct, usually not sticking with the working class man Tyler Perry has like set as the aspirational figure. But that's all to say that gays, uh, yeah, gays taste, uh, maybe not her taste, but like it's clear that she want very much wants expansive, interesting depictions of black people on film. And is sort of kind of willing to take what you can get, but not really. Mm-hmm. Did you see the help? Did you have that same, like, I'm going to throw something at this screen? I saw the help because my mom really likes that movie and I bought it for Christmas one year. And I did not have the same, I'm going to throw something at the screen feeling. I just had sort of a, this is not very good. Right. Like, Why do you think is... your mom liked it if she hated it so much? Like, the help is a, essentially like a movie steeped in nostalgia. And I think mm-hmm. because my mom, my mom's mom was like a domestic helper. And sort of my mom grew up in the Deep South, sort of like there's all these cultural things around the story of the help that kind of just appealed to my mom as like a you know middle-aged Southern woman. Did your mom groove with a domestic help? Like it's like a twist on Magical Negro, but it's like the domestic help as like rebellious and saving the mood. Like did yeah. your mom – she took that – like for right. Roxanne Gage, she thought that was just totally condescending. Right. And, you know, just bathing in cliches and old tropes and everything. But for your mom, it was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I think, Katie, that I actually really like the essay and her idea about what we think of unlikable characters. And I think mm-hmm. you did not like that essay. I admired the essay. Let's explain was... what the essay okay. is, actually. I'm sorry. I, I haven't done it. I I, just for people who haven't read it. So there was a debate about whether we expect characters to be likable, this idea that commenters and people reading books and critics complain and particularly complain if female characters are not likable. The essay is called Not Here to Make Friends. And she has a great line which says, you know, we read as if we're in a courtship. We expect characters. Do we like them? Are they doing the correct moral things? And that this is not an interesting way to read a novel. Right. So I agree with that. I don't think that we should be seeking out likability in fictional characters. But this goes back to what you said, I think, about how she perceives herself as this loner who's on the outside looking in and wanting to belong and not belonging. Just this idea that likability is, I think she calls it an elaborate lie or a facade. And I was thinking, no, there's genuine charm. There are people who are likable and not secretly scheming. And it seems like another straw man construction to me. And I did like the essay, (laughs) liked it. But I thought that, again, this was sort of more interesting for what it showed about Roxanne Gay's perspective, someone who distrusts the sort of smooth surface and the golden girl and things that seem too simple. And 
that actually predisposed her to maybe see complexity where there wasn't or mm-hmm. see disassembly where there wasn't. But here's something interesting. The places I realize where I like her the most is when she makes unlikely identifications, you know, mm. where she, for example, identifies with one of the girls in Sweet Valley High. It, you know, the people she ultimately identifies with, like Katniss and Sweet Valley High, are fairly straightforward and one could even say simplistic heroines. It's a funny thing where she like, you know, she finds herself in people that you don't expect her to find herself with. Like, I don't know that there's a black character that she says, you know, oh, this person's just like me, like this person's Haitian and they're just like me. And so I identify with them because they look like me and they are like me. You know, it's like Vanessa Williams that she (laughs) identifies with as a kid. And I was trying to figure out why that was. Like, despite her incredibly sharp cultural criticism, she has such an open heart for these, you know, simple, even strong women characters. Well, I think what she said about Katniss was just the depth of endurance and suffering. Like, she identified with how much Katniss went through, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know lots of people identify with fictional characters nothing like themselves. I mean, my entire childhood was spent identifying very strongly with Han Solo from Star Wars. Oh, my God. I'm so glad to know that about you. Wait, what was it? Why was it Han Solo and not, like, Chewbacca? Because Han Solo was cool. I mean, like, Han Solo is a guy who doesn't give a damn and is, like, very smooth. And I was, like, kind of a very insecure little kid. And so, you know, watching a lot of Star Wars, like, kind of seeing this always has an answer, always has a response. There's the famous scene, he's about to be frozen in carbonite, and he can't even say, I love you too, to his girlfriend. He's like, I know that you love me. (laughs) That's how cool I am. And so, yeah, it was just sort of aspirational for, like, a, you know, Uh nine-year-old insecure kid. And so I kind of, I get that about about Roxanne, like identifying with Vanessa Williams, for instance, who was a very aspirational person. Right. Can I just say, I love her fantasy life. Like, I love <laughs> right, I agree. whenever she talks about, like, these dreams are really real to me. And she's like, I see myself in this person and that person. And she is so honest about, oh, well, I just fantasized about winning an Oscar and, like, having everyone fall at my feet. And, of course, I agree. I love yeah. that. Yeah. So how can you reconcile that fantasy and desire with the same desire to, you know, the sort of you're sitting there watching girls and thinking, like, there's no one who looks like me on the show, right. and that's irritating. Like, why can she identify there, but in girls, she just, the lack of, of kind of similar, you know, it just turns her off. And maybe this gets back to the the idea of a bad feminist. Like, you can hold these two things that are in some sense contradictory and so kind of, like, not keep them separate, but not really bother to reconcile them. There's sort of two... One concern is like very personal and one concern is very political and not trying to. Or maybe what she doesn't like about girls, which is what a lot of people don't like about girls. I mean, the show is not aspirational. You know, there isn't any perfect person with a perfect life. It's not Sex yeah. in the City. You know, it's not Sweet Valley High. It's not Vanessa Williams. Like, it just doesn't have that shine at yeah, all. Yeah, weirdly, the characters on girls are much less likable than the Sweet Valley High characters or Katniss. Right. I mean, they're completely unlikable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so maybe that just doesn't do it for – it's not merely the lack of, a, you know, the total race blindness and the sort of little sliver of privilege that they live in. It's it's just that they are so miserable. But they're insiders too, right? Like they've been culturally anointed. And so even if they're not liked, they belong, they're respected. And I think that she, as you pointed out a while ago, that she is always sort of on the outside looking in and sympathizing with the people who seem to be enduring and struggling and trying to find their place. So let's talk about her disturbing essay, which comes somewhere in the late middle of the book. 
which was called What We Hunger For. And it's essentially about her girlhood and the time that she was raped. And I thought this was one of the best depictions of a girlhood horror that I have ever, ever read. And I think part of the reason it was amazing is because weirdly it's wrapped in in a piece about the Hunger Games. So Mm -hmm. it's completely unexpected. Like it's probably exactly how it occurs in a girl's mind. It's a little bit like what you said about Han Solo, but not as horrible. I mean, just that this would lead to an absolute escape fantasy. And that's probably somewhat like the experience of it. Like you would want to be a superheroine because you know that Katniss would have sliced their heads off or something. And you had wished that you had superhero powers at that moment. And the other thing is that this is a time when she does not introduce herself necessarily in this story as a victim. It's not how we start, like my girlhood was terrible. She kind of makes the choice to elucidate her own flaws before getting into the scene. So on page 141, this is when she said, you know, yes, I've wanted for little. I come from a great family. But one of my weaknesses, one that's always shamey, is that I've always been lonely. I've struggled to make friends because I can be socially awkward, because I'm weird, because I live in my head. When I was young, we moved around a lot, so there was rarely any time to get to know a new place, let alone new people. Loneliness was the one familiar thing, making me the bottomless pit of need, open and gaping and desperate for anything to fill up. I should not be this way, but I am. Now, that is really unusual to have a chapter which is about the most horrific searing moment of your life begin with a confessional self-criticism. What did you guys think about her decision to tell this story, which is a pretty horrible story where the person who she loves and wants to please takes her to this horrible shack and he's there with all his friends and the boys, it sounds like from her description and memory, could not have been more indifferent. There was not a moment of kindness in this and basically take off her clothes and she doesn't say exactly what happens, but it sounds like several of them raped her, though she doesn't say the details. I thought it was a gorgeous essay. I thought the way the rape just sort of erupted in the middle of this meditation on the Hunger Games said something about how you can't predict and can't comprehend these things happening until they do. And then all of a sudden, everything that came before has to be reinterpreted and seen in a different light. And you kind of see her weaving these narratives like about Katniss and about how she might fit into the Hunger Games world. Like she's team PETA. She fantasizes about PETA. Who's so gentle and protective. It's like yet another fantasy that would arise in that situation. And you see how narrative becomes this kind of escape valve, but also like her redemption. And I think she even says that. She says, you think you are alone until you find books about girls like you. Salvation is certainly among the reasons I read. Reading and writing have always pulled me out of the darkest experiences in my life. And I feel like here you sort of get to the heart of this book and why it exists. Once I read that experience, which is a kind of rosebud experience, I mean, she does talk about how it washes up in in other parts of her life. You can kind of understand how she displaced more expected emotions in other essays, like her absolute anger about how girls were treated got displaced Mm -hmm. onto that New York Times story about the 11-year-old girl who was raped. And then the Times story was all about, you know, town shattered, you know, which was another great essay. Or her other essay about safety. It's like all the more traditional feelings she would have, she just kind of wrapped them up elsewhere, which was very interesting. Have either of you read her novels? Of not. An untamed state? No. Because no. she talks about writing about rape in novels, but I'm curious how she actually does it, um, if it's different than how she wrote about herself. So did any of you have another favorite chapter that you liked? I like the chapter on Django Unchained just because I really not. disagreed with the chapter on Django Unchained. What did you disagree with? 
I was about to, to re- actually rephrase it. I'm not sure that I disagree with it. She says in the essay that she does not think she was the audience for that movie. Uh-huh. I think I am the audience for that movie. <laughs> Why? I think she was approaching Django, and she may be approaching a lot of Tarantino films as sort of like stories to maybe like get involved in for yourself, like find yourself in, in, as a protagonist. And I don't watch Tarantino movies like that. I watch mm-hmm. them very much as pastiches of other movies, and mm-hmm. I like that about them. Mm-hmm. You know, she explicitly says like, you know, I'm glad Tarantino can make an homage to all of his favorite movies, but that's not really, you know, what I think is worth celebrating or watching. I just read the essay thinking to myself, oh, well, this is why Tarantino made that choice. This is why Jamie Foxx was like this. He's alluding to this other movie. And it was just fun to sort of like essentially have an argument in my head with Roxanne about this director that I really like and she clearly has no real taste for. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you mean you have no emotional reaction, like personal, doesn't get under your skin? No, it doesn't get under, my, get under my skin. No, no, no. I yeah. mean, reasonable people can disagree about Tarantino. Uh-huh. Um, but that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about Roxanne, I think. And now we're on first name First name basis, basis all of us, <laughs> um, yeah. Is that she seems to be arguing from emotion and just like the difference is how buried or like how sublimated is that emotion. Like I really don't get the sense reading any of these essays that, you know, that she has a rational procedure for coming up with her argument. I think that she has these very strong emotions and like sometimes she'll intellectualize them and sometimes she won't. But she's basically just telling us like, I watched this movie. This is how I feel and let me explore that. And I found that to be like a really refreshing and interesting mode of criticism, like from the heart as opposed to the brain. Right. Well, I think the most honest writing about morality and political position acknowledges that it stems from a kind of tribal place. Like it yeah. stems from either your temperament and your emotions or, you know, your tribal sensibility, like where you came from and what food you ate and all the things that initially influence you. Um, and I think a lot of times that isn't part of the debate and with her, and maybe this is a female essayist style, is that that's a little more explicit. You can acknowledge that, you know, I feel this way and therefore I think this way. And that's a completely reasonable way for your ideas to unfold. Yeah, because without that, I felt that the political stances that she took were just kind of dull. Uh-huh. You know, like they weren't breaking new ground, really. You mean her feminist stances? Yeah, or like what? Yeah. yeah, like the claims that she makes about the way women should be portrayed in pop culture. That's not revolutionary. Like, yes, it should be said, but... I'm not going to read that for pleasure. I already know that. You right. know, even if she expresses it powerfully, what is so pleasurable about reading this book is like connecting the dots of like, oh, she's saying this because she feels this way. And it's basically like this total immersion in the mind of Roxanne Gay. Right. Hannah. Yes. What did you think of her criticism of your book? I read it on the plane and I actually had to like hold the book sideways because it was so painful for me because I really liked like at this point I really really liked her so I was like oh but can't she just be my friend <laughs> we're just gonna be friends right you know she writes interesting and intelligent but ultimately frustrating I actually think that's a fair criticism of the end of men she kind of is on to me and my argumentative style which I don't do in every piece but that way in which I can frame things such that I can like box out any criticism. I think she's she's right about that. Now, the specifics of her criticism, you know, she calls me selective. I could call her selective. Like, you know, we could get to sort of a tit for tat to every statistic that she brings up. Like she brings up straw man, like Richard Mordock. I mean, not that he's a straw man or not a horrible person, but it's he doesn't, you know, represent all that much. And the one criticism of hers I think is correct is this idea that is better the same as 
where we need to be, right? So like right. if is the fact that I can point to lots of statistics mean that women are doing okay, she's right about that. On the other hand, I would say that largely how I think of my book is that there are large swaths of the country in which things are upside down, in which women are literally sort of running things. And this is more sort of working middle class America, but, but just trying to get people's heads around the fact that even though some things are the same or some things are a little bit better in profound ways, especially at the family level, some things are completely flipped upside down of the way that they have been for years and years and years. So it's a complicated argument where like everything she says could be true. And yet there are things I want her to recognize right. and, you know, acknowledge in, in there. It felt like what she was saying is we have this situation and Hannah Rosen is calling it glass half full. And I think that that is a disservice. And if we don't call it glass half empty, then people will be complacent and we will settle and it's our obligation to keep fighting. So it's like you see the same information, but she has issues with how you're interpreting it because she thinks that we need to push harder. Yeah. And also, I have to say, as an emotional experience, she's a very gentle critic. I mean, it's another mm -hmm. you have to like her because she's <laughs> you know, she's not a hater. You know, she is a, maybe a glass half empty person, but she goes out of her way to say generous things about even things that she really doesn't like while making her criticism. And I think one should learn from that. Like, she's not that polemical for someone who writes online a lot. She doesn't go for the jugular and she's pretty careful in her criticisms of things. I mean, I will take intelligent and frustrating. I That's all right. I can... I, that's a start for a debate that I can accept. I can sympathize with that half glass full approach because the criticism I think she levied on your book is often the criticism I get when I write about racial stuff. Which is what? Which exactly? is that I'm often looking at the, the downside and, and the bad and the ways in which things are very far from perfect. And the response I'm often getting is – you know, look at not just like Barack Obama's president, but like look at the number of middle class black people and look at sort of the extent to which racial prejudice is like a complete and utter taboo. And I'm very much like, oh, yes, yes, that's all very true. But like, look at all these other things for less affluent African-Americans and like less affluent Latinos and so on and so forth. I, I have not read your book on a but you can understand. I mean, my problem with that way of debating in general is it feels like a misunderstanding of history to me. History is not linear, right? Like you can have you history is full of surprises right. and and you know kind of like no progress followed by giant leaps and and then kind of reversals and you can have this weird mixed up thing where on one scale people are zooming forward and in another way they're completely behind. Right. You know what I mean? So there's this sense that like are we marching forward in progress right. or marching backwards? It's like it's just ultimately in a frustrating debate to have about <laughs> anything or anybody. So it doesn't take us very far. To switch topics, here's a part of a book that I didn't like. I really, really like this book is the How to Be Friends with Another Woman. That was, uh, Katie, you're making a face like you really like that. I did not identify <laughs> with that. I was like, I kind of learned these lessons you know, this sounds like high school to me. Like, I don't have this experience of female friendships, but since you have a twin sister, you probably do. Yeah, no, I just thought, I thought it was funny because it seemed like such a send up. Like, basically, the strategy seemed to be, it is so reductive to see female friendships as this toxic thing. But so, do people see that? People think of female friendships as toxic? Well, not females who are friends with each other. I don't think they see friendships as toxic. But, but in the culture, in we the tend culture, to think female friendships as toxic. I would argue yes, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just what I've encountered personally in the culture. I thought that her technique was to say, okay, let's pretend that 
friendships were this reductive, what would I do? I would do something really reductive, which would be buy a self-help book to get out of it Mm -hmm. and then have these very simple, stupid-sounding steps. So I just thought the whole thing was kind of goofy and funny. And arch, like one shouldn't take it too seriously. See, I always think – when I think about the history of women in pop culture, I know that there's a lot of ways in their – ways in which they're missing or not central. But there's another strain of it, which is the mythologizing and obsession of particularly single women and the lives of single women, which has been going on for years and years in television, like, and isn't true for men at all. Like, people are interested in kind of manhood as this universal theme, but people are interested in every switch and change and, like, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and then Sex in the City. It's like any time there's a little trend going on with single women, there'll be just some fantastic, you know, elaborate show about it. And it involves fairly complicated ideas about female friendship and dividing women into different archetypes. And so there is a part of me sees pop culture as like way too obsessed with every iteration of women's emotions and idealizes them in a certain way. So I guess I don't see it as that bleak. So you thought she was just misrepresenting female friendship. I think it's a temperamental thing. I don't I think this is how she experiences female friendship and I think oh. I don't experience female friendship quite this way. Like I don't need to constantly remind myself not to be jealous of my friends or not to tell them, you know, not to be glad when they look fat or whatever. Like it's not maybe it's an age difference. Like she's younger than I am. So it might be that I have forgotten that I felt this way very strongly when I was closer to 30 and that now I'm 40 and I don't like it just never occurs to me like I love my lady friends and I'm happy for them when good things happen. And it's just not, it's my brain doesn't need to like be wrenched into that situation of sisterly generosity. It's kind of already there. Not because I'm a better person. Maybe it's just experience and life. And I don't know. And I don't have a sister. So I think being bored, having really good friends who have sisters, (laughs) what's the sister thing? I think the gel, like I have to, you know, I have a single girl and two boys. And I think my impression, and you tell me you have a sister, is like when you grow up with a single gender sibling, that that competition is, is really deep and under the skin and like very powerful and it takes a long time to kind of it's just always kind of there in a way that if you grow up a brother and a sister it's not quite as under your skin no okay yes (laughs) sure twinship is a jungle of craziness but I thought just to leave that part out of it, I thought the purpose of this essay was not actually to target those particular ways of relating between women, but to target the idea that Uh these friendships are toxic in the first place. And that's why her form, which is this – basically it's a checklist. It's like a self-help checklist, Uh how to be friends with another woman. There's one, two, three, three A. I'm going to read one of these, by yeah. the way. Do you, you want to read your favorite one? I mean, I have there's lots and lots um, here. Just to what's give your favorite? I don't our know. listeners a sense of what this list looks like. Okay, 3A. If you feel like it's hard to be friends with women, consider that maybe women aren't the problem. Maybe it's just you. 3B. I used to be this kind of woman. I'm sorry to judge. I mean, it goes on. It's It's cute. It's arch. It's not like very earnest and heavy. Right. So like the simplicity or like the reductiveness of the form, I think, is targeting the idea that people see female friendship this way. It's not saying, oh, female friendship is actually this way. Right. I see. She's targeting the cultural expectation or the creation of a cultural expectation, not not the reality of female friendships. I want to end on where she ends, which is about the mess. It's something you talked about, Katie, too. It's her essay about Amy Winehouse, who I just love and felt the same way when Amy Winehouse died. And I think maybe this is an encapsulation, a fair encapsulation of Roxane Gay's view of the world. 
She says about Amy Winehouse, we knew she had problems and she did not have the luxury the rest of us do to handle our problems privately with dignity. This is on page 298. She was a mess. So what? We're all stinking messes, every last one of us. Or we once were messes and found our way out or we're trying to find our way out of a mess scratching and reaching. If you have this philosophy for life, which she seems to have, do you think that's a good thing? Like, what does that do to your, you know, pose towards humanity and towards reading and towards watching? Like, do you guys think that's a, you know, the mess view of life, that we are all messes? Is that an essentially almost Christian generous idea? I, I don't remember if she grew up in a religious household, but it sounds like that the worldview of someone who grew up in a religious household, who but who may not necessarily be religious anymore. Because mm-hmm. when you posit that everyone is a mess and sort of it implies a level of like generosity and sort of acceptance towards the fact that everyone's a mess and, and a trying to, an attempt to shy away from rigid ideas of how people ought to be or like rigid ideologies, which again goes back to the idea of a bad feminist that mm-hmm. it very much ties the idea of a bad feminist ties to the idea that like there's no one who can fit squarely into the contours of an ideology. Right. That way of viewing the world appeals to me. I guess you could call it shades of gray, but it's not really because there are, even if everyone's a mess, there are still like blacks and whites and things to the things that are clear and that are good and that are bad and so on and so forth. But it's acknowledgement that um, all of those things can be contained within like a single Mm -hmm. discreet person or or thing. Right. I guess it is like saying we are all sinners. I mean, it is an idea that. When she writes about we are trying to find our way out of a mess, scratching, reaching, that reminded me of the subtitle of the Scrabble essay to scratch, claw, or grope clumsily or frantically. And I think that there's something in her philosophy that relates imperfection to creativity and messes to strength. And there's this idea that wounds sort of call forth strength and that they become kind of points of connection and ways that you start building letters on top of each other and building ideas and I think, and she's very accepting of our kind of inner animal nature. Like that's what's right. lovely about the Scrabble essay. Like she knows, you know, Scrabble is so tidy and neat and is about words, but yet what's going on there is a lot of like prey and predator. Like right. she describes her, you know, <laughs> situations with her competitors, like which one of them is is got the natural predator instinct in their eyes, and they're about to take their yeah. claws out. You know, it's all the underlying thing to this kind of neat board on the table. Oh yeah, one of the best lines is she said, "I made it my life." mission to crush him. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I just wanted that on a shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like such a simple thing, but in she has this gentle voice and she's, you know, she's saying something in that essay about, you know, the mess comes out and yet, you know, we're, we try and contain the mess. A final question. Would you guys recommend this book? Is there somebody specific you would recommend this book to and other people you wouldn't? Would you recommend it to a guy? You think a guy would read this book yeah. if he didn't have to for an audio book? Like? <laughs> I mean, I was planning to read this book anyway, so. Really? Um, yeah. You're such a good feminist. <laughs> <laughs> she talks about that, about whether guys read her novels and do you have to care if guys read your novels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she has a lot of feelings about that, which are interesting. I would recommend it to guys, in, in part because I think men should just read more women. Like, not mm-hmm. enough. Like, it's insofar that men don't read enough. When they do read, it's just typically a lot of guys. And mm-hmm. so um, both is sort of like a, you know, a, 
things you ought to do. You should read Beth Feminist. And it's just, it, it's a good book of essays. Like, it's enjoyable. Like, I think there are a lot of things that, like, I guess a, a typical guy could find and relate to and understand. Mm-hmm. And so far that anyone's experience is universal. I think women's experiences are just as capable as being universal as men's are, too. And that, in and of itself, is a reason to read the book. And would you, Katie, despite the fact that you her, you found her politics predictable, would you recommend someone read the book? Yes. What I would recommend specifically is that a group of college kids read the book and then talk about it, mm-hmm. perhaps while getting high. <laughs> or not. You can t- take that out if you'd like. Because why? Because why college kids? Because there's a sort of spirit of intellectual exploration and but also like feeling things really deeply and trying to figure out your place in the world and like being super attuned to your own subjectivity, but also trying to relate to others that just said college to me. Right, right. And it has self-consciousness, but short of awkwardness and a lot of reaching. I also just found it delightful to be in her company. It's sort of the feeling you get when you listen to a good radio show or even a good podcast and you feel very familiar with these people. She's so welcoming that I felt like, oh, that was a nice, long, you know, however hours I spent with this, this awesome person. And it was just interesting to like probe her mind and hear all her thoughts and hear about her life. And it's just like a cool person you met on a long train ride and was glad that you did. Yeah, Hannah, I really wanted her to be my friend, and she actually retweeted my review. Woohoo! And I like <laughs> flipped out. Like I normally don't on Twitter, but uh-huh. I completely flipped what out did you say? and was useless. I was too intimidated to reply. I think I just favorited the retweet or something. See, but that's that's exactly how she would write the incident. I feel like she would confess all of those things that you just confessed and Warren, so it's perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> so a program note. Our next audio book club selection is Cheryl Strayed's Wild. Read it if you haven't already. It's been out a while, but it's going to be made into a movie. And join us for our discussion on October 10th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audio book club at slate.com slash ABC. You can visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdullah Rufus. The executive producer of all the Slate podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Katie Waldman and Jamal Bowie, I'm Hannah Rosen, and thank you for listening.